Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Climate change is here and greatly impacting our weather and long-term climatic trends. In the Southwest, it's having a tremendous impact on water resources across the Colorado River watershed. Less snowfall in recent years has greatly diminished the snowpack high up in the Rockies that provides spring runoff. As that snowpack and runoff continues to shrink, the Colorado River struggles to meet the demands that are put on it. Indeed, the river can't meet all those demands through the upper basin and lower basin states that stretch from Wyoming down to Southern California. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. Not only can't the Colorado River meet the demands placed on it, but its flows are slacking and its waters warming in some places and becoming more conducive to invasive species that are competing with native species and even outcompeting some of them. During a recent kayaking trip to Lake Powell in Glen Canyon National Recreation Area, I saw those two dilemmas up close. The lake's level was down 137 feet from its full pool elevation, and invasive quagga mussel shells coated the sandstone walls throughout Lake Powell. Can anything be done about this if the decades-long drought doesn't relent and more snow falls in the high country? That's a hard question to answer. What we can tell you, though, is that the drought and warming temperatures associated with climate change are affecting the Colorado River, and those impacts also are showing up in national parks along the river's path. I'll be back in a minute to share with you some of the interviews I had with park officials and scientists studying the situation in the Grand Canyon. This is the latest in a series of stories National Parks Traveler has been producing on the health, or lack of health, of the Colorado River and how that impacts national parks along the river. Previous stories have examined impacts to Canyonlands National Park and Glen Canyon National Recreation Area, both upriver of Grand Canyon National Park. You can find both of those stories at nationalparkstraveler.org. Now, The Traveler, with underwriting support from the Water Desk, an independent journalism initiative based at the University of Colorado Boulder's Center for Environmental Journalism, looks at how Grand Canyon National Park is being affected by the waning health of the Colorado River. When Grand Canyon National Park was established by Congress back in 1919, there was no dam to slow the Colorado River as it poured out of the Rocky Mountains, cut across the Colorado Plateau, and was squeezed into the canyon by its soaring ramparts of igneous, metamorphic, and sandstone layers. The river's ebb and flow were constrained only by the amount of snowmelt that came out of the high country each spring, and records show that the Early 1900s, the 1940s, and the 1980s were particularly wet. But the past 60 years have brought development and climate change to the region that have greatly changed the once wild Colorado. Today, the river's ill health starts nearly 700 miles away from Grand Canyon, at its headwaters on the western fringe of Rocky Mountain National Park. But it goes from a nagging cough there to walking pneumonia in Languid Lake Powell behind the Glen Canyon Dam. From there, figuratively and quite literally, it's all downhill. On a warm late April day, I met with Jan Balsam, the Chief of External Affairs and External Communications at Grand Canyon National Park, to discuss the health of the Colorado River as it runs through her park. 
and Jan, a beautiful day in the park, but there's a lot of stuff going on that the general visitor probably doesn't know about. I mean, people come to the South Rim and the North Rim to stare down into that beautiful canyon. And if they're lucky enough, they might hike down to the river, the Colorado River. Or if they're really lucky, they might ride a raft down 280 some miles of the Colorado River. And there's a lot of uh, concern about the health of the Colorado and how it's impacting the park. Um, we've had reduced snowpack in the, the watershed. We've had uh, invasive species. Monsoons haven't shown up. What's highest on your radar in terms of what to be concerned about? You know, I think with, when you look at Colorado River issues, they're complicated because of all of the things you're talking about. There's water availability, there's water sustainability, there's ecological integrity, and there's just the sure um, experience of the Colorado River for visitors. And you mentioned rafting down the Colorado River. You know, that's great, but if we don't have a healthy ecosystem, we're not going to be able to support recreational activities. So when you look at the issues on the Colorado, I mean, maintaining our endangered species is huge. We've spent years, and I personally have spent, boy, 30 years, over 30 years working on Colorado River issues, first as the archaeologist, then working on recreational issues, working on environmental impact statements for how Glen Canyon Dam is operated. And there's a complicated system um, that's put in place to make sure that all the voices are heard. But for us within the Park Service, we are responsible for maintaining the integrity of the natural and cultural resources and um, the visitor uses. So, but first, it's got to be the natural and cultural resources that this park was established for. And joining Jan and me as we sat at the park's amphitheater on the South Rim was Grand Canyon Superintendent Ed Keeble. The health of the Colorado River is just one of the many issues the superintendent has to deal with, but it's a high-priority issue. So, Superintendent Keeble, uh, we're in this wonderful park of yours, the huge canyon behind us, and probably the second most thing that folks come to see is the Colorado River that runs through it, either to gaze down on the river, possibly hike down, or most preferably ride the rapids and the wave trains that go through there. And yet the Colorado River is under, under siege, basically. Um, the, the snowpack at the headwaters of the Colorado are lower than they've been. We've been in this long-running drought. The monsoons haven't shown up uh, in a couple of years at least. That's got to be a concern for, for you and your science staff as far as uh, the future of the Colorado River and, and how it can be enjoyed. Our chief concerns are managing the resource in a way that protects endangered fish. We, we have two endangered fish uh, in the Colorado River uh, within the Grand Canyon, uh, the humpback chub and the razorback uh, sucker. Uh, and so uh, our scientists work with U.S. geological scientists and uh, Fish and Wildlife Service scientists and others to understand the impacts of uh, the flow of water in the Colorado River on those species. Uh, but we also have other interests, uh, recreation and, and others. Uh, our tribal partners refer to the uh, Colorado River as the lifeblood of the canyon. Uh, they have a perspective which I find really interesting and, and helpful as superintendent to uh, uh, to, to think about, which is that uh, the canyon and the river are living entities and that uh, we have a responsibility to them to, uh, to protect and preserve them as living entities. Uh, and so that's a concept that uh, I'm still learning about, but uh, very cognizant of as superintendent, uh, that they're vital to the success of, of this park. The day before I met with Superintendent Keeble and Chief Balsam, I was down at the boat launch at Lee's Ferry, the starting point for float trips heading down the Colorado through Grand Canyon National Park. 
There I caught up with Matt Kaplinski, a scientist from Northern Arizona University, whose first float trip through the park was back in 1987. Now he was about to set off on a two-week scientific journey through the park. Standing by the river as crews worked to ready the rafts, he explained that reduced flows through the Glen Canyon Dam had deprived the canyon of massive floods of churning water that would scour the river channel, pushing sandbars back and forth and downstream and ripping out vegetation just starting to root in the sands. Without that scouring, vegetation was encroaching onto sandbars and actually locking them into place. Why those sandbars are about the same size or bigger than they were is because once the flows were restricted, vegetation has migrated and established down to lower elevations on the sandbars. And the big sandbars are covered in pretty dense riparian vegetation right now, which essentially locks in that part of the sandbar to being eroded by flows from the dam. Keith Cole, a U.S. Geological Survey geodesist, someone who measures and monitors the Earth's size and shape to exacting calculations, who was leading the scientific trip, was blunt in his summation. It was only 20 years ago where the lake was full. So look where now we're at 37% or something like that at Lake Powell. It's tremendous that you could lose that much volume of water in just two decades. Um, It really is surprising no it's really surprising that all of this infrastructure could get to a point where it's worthless when the 710 foot tall glen canyon dam blocked a key arterial of the colorado river at page arizona back in 1963 it was called both an engineering marvel as well as the cause of some of the most extensive and persistent scars of large-scale environmental modification Designed to create a massive reservoir holding 26.2 million acre-feet of water that for decades would slake the thirst of Arizona, Nevada, and California, the dam muted this river's seasonal raging. Prior to the raising of the dam, the river's flow through the nearly 280-mile-long Grand Canyon would average just under 8,000 cubic feet per second most of the year, according to data compiled by Kaplinsky. The scientists also noted that the river's flow would jump to more than 50,000 cubic feet per second for half the time in June when spring runoff peaked, and at least once every eight years there would be a deluge flowing at 125,000 cubic feet per second. In July 1884, a flow estimated somewhere between 199,000 cubic feet per second and 228,000 cubic feet per second raced through the canyon. It was believed to be the greatest flood through Grand Canyon since Major John Wesley Powell ran the river in 1869. But things changed drastically with the arrival of the Glen Canyon Dam, which corralled the huge outpourings that came with heavy snow years. While the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation, which operates the dam and its hydroelectric facility with its eight electric generators, has in recent years tried to mimic those natural floods through high-flow experiments, they haven't come close to replicating the pre-Glen Canyon Dam floods down the Colorado River. Indeed, in a brochure, the Bureau touched on the impacts the dam brought to the river. It was clear that the majestic canyon would be impacted, and not in a good way. That brochure states that, 
As a result of the construction and operation of Glen Canyon Dam, the Colorado River ecosystem below the dam changed significantly from its pre-dam natural character. Before the dam was built, the Colorado River was a sediment-laden river that fluctuated in flow according to the seasons, rainfall, and inflow from side canyons. Now the water released from the dam runs clear and cold without the springtime floods that once transported sediment, built beaches, and provided habitat for native species. Downstream from the dam, a new ecosystem emerged, consisting of a mixture of native and non-native plant and animal communities. In short, the approach the Bureau of Reclamation takes to operating the dam's hydro station for power generation appears to conflict with the mandate of the Grand Canyon Protection Act of 1992 to operate the dam in such a way as to protect, mitigate adverse impacts, and improve the values for which Grand Canyon National Park and Glen Canyon National Recreation Area were established. Today, longtime river runners can see the changes in the Colorado River as it flows through Grand Canyon. Invasive tamarisk, a native to Eurasia and Africa that can push out native species and even alter wildlife habitat, can be found in the canyon, as well as native willows and arrowweed. Mesquites also are moving down into the canyon, in part because the disappearance of the massive seasonal floods allows them to take root. Under normal scenarios and high runoff, the river would rip out much of the vegetation and prevent vegetation-heavy sandbars from slowly constricting the river channel. In Grand Canyon, the vegetative encroachment is being battled by park crews through the use of tamarisk beetles, which weaken the trees by eating its leaves, and by physically removing invasive species. So our vegetation crews in the park have been targeting certain beaches, working with um, the guiding community as well, and with the scientists uh, who work with the uh, USGS to identify those areas where we have encroachment. There's a difference between native vegetation encroachment and exotic vegetation encroachment. So we're certainly focusing on the exotic vegetation encroachment areas. We have camel thorn taking over beaches. The tamarisk issue has been a, an issue for years, but the, the tamarisk beetle has pretty well taken care of many of those, which leaves us with stands of dead tamarisk, which then also have to be addressed. And then arrowweed, which is a native, but it is taking over huge swaths of beaches. It's a clonal plant, and pretty much our crews are going in and pretty much just, you have to repeatedly remove it. So we're working with uh, our own vegetation crews. We've worked with some Native American youth crews and ancestral land core crews uh, as our staff to do that. Uh, working with our tribal communities to target areas that they're really concerned about too. So, but we've got 277 miles worth of the Colorado River and Grand Canyon there's a lot of beach and you know it's hard to keep up with it. So we're targeting areas that have multiple uh, resource values, recreational camping beaches being one, but also areas where we know that um, there are um, sensitive archeological sites that require sand uh, to be blown back up. And those of us who live in the West know that it's windy mm -hmm. a lot of the time, especially in, in the spring months, so that if you can actually open up those sandbars, that wind will blow up and rebury uh, those archeological sites. With the ongoing drought in the southwest and the shrinking winter snowpacks, the issue of whether there is enough water in Lake Powell is a huge question that stakeholders are trying to answer. Currently, a 1922 compact guides how much Colorado River water goes to the upper basin states of Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming, as well as the lower basin states of Arizona, California, and Nevada, along with Mexico. And then there are tribal rights, 
which call for 20% of the river's flow, to be diverted to those tribes in the upper and lower basin states with quantified water rights. But population growth and the ongoing drought have started talks about reassessing water distributions in and between those basins. Right now, there's still a guaranteed amount of water from the upper basin to the lower basin, which is this 8.23 million acre feet a year. The Bureau of Reclamation is starting to evaluate the um, amount of water that's going to come from the whole series of dams through from the headwaters all the way down. Glen Canyon marks the dividing point between the upper basin and the lower basin. There was a compact written in 1922 that divided all of this stuff, the waters between the upper and lower basin. Of course, they used the highest water years on record to um, estimate because they didn't know anything else and somehow they thought if we build it, it will come and we'll always have water and we know now that we won't. So right now there's gonna be a process over the next, I wanna say six years to truly evaluate how much water really is in the basin and how much can be apportioned between the states and then how much is gonna be released. Um, as of this past month, they're looking at drought contingency plans already for the next two years. During the first two decades of the 21st century, Inflows into Lake Powell were below average for 15 years between the year 2000 and 2019. The outlook for a return to the early 1980s when snowpack was deep and spring runoff plentiful and kept Lake Powell full or nearly full is not promising. Through mid-April of this year, more than half of the Intermountain West, including the states of Arizona, Colorado, New Mexico, and Utah, we're under extreme to exceptional drought conditions, according to the U.S. Drought Monitor. Long-term drought conditions are forecast to continue for the West through June at least. And I think we have to take the long view on some of this stuff, and I think we have to be smart about it too. And we've got to be smart with our infrastructure developments. We've got to be smart with minimizing our impacts to the land. We've got to be smart by not over-promising um, and under-producing. And we, and we have to realize that you just can't keep building, that at some point you've got to say, you know, I think, I think we're good. The question, of course, is whether we've already passed that point. For National Parks Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. That's the third installment of our series on how the waning health of the Colorado River is impacting units of the National Park System along its path. If you take our three stories as a whole, you'll appreciate that the Colorado River plays a very significant role at Canyonlands National Park, Glen Canyon National Recreation Area, and Grand Canyon National Park. Whether the National Park Service can fully mitigate those impacts remains to be seen. Coming up in the weeks and months ahead, we'll be looking at how the long-standing drought in the Southwest is impacting National Park units in that region. And we'll also be exploring the impacts of invasive species plants and animals on parks across the country. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. This podcast is part of a series of articles on the Colorado River and its impacts on national parks in Utah. It was supported by a grant from The Water Desk, an independent journalism initiative based at the University of Colorado Boulder's Center for Environmental Journalism. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. 
Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.